Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm your host, Sheila Hamilton, and today we have part two of our interview with Logan Lynn. He's a songwriter, producer, filmmaker, TV personality, and activist. In 2017, he received the prestigious Award of Excellence from the National Council for Behavioral Health for his advocacy work and for founding the Keep Oregon Well campaign, which fights the stigma of mental illness. Picking up where we left off, Logan, I want to get your thoughts and maybe some tips for someone who's in the age range of 11 to 17 who is gay and really terrified to come out. I think my advice for all LGBTQ people everywhere, young people, old people, whoever, is to come out on your own schedule when it feels safe. I think if I were to give myself advice back then, I might say, hey, dude, maybe hold on a second, right? Like, wait till you get over here so you don't get your ass kicked. So, like, there's some things like that that actually are practical ways of empowering LGBTQ people to come out in a way where you're seen and celebrated and held. Yeah. It's, you know, you don't have to feel this pressure because you see me being big, loud, gay to like also be big, loud and gay. Right. You can become yourself on your own timeline. And the real thing is we need more queer people in the world. We need more trans people in the world that are adults that have grown up, that are happy and healthy and celebrated. And the way to do that is to stick around. <sighs> Just going to let that sink in because it just, I mean, it's um, especially right now with the rate of suicide among LGBTQ plus people. I just really want people to hear that. The way to do it is to stick around. So I want to switch gears. In this cool blog post that you just wrote, um, you said, 20 years ago this month, I was homeless in San Francisco, living in a pay-by-the-hour hotel in the Tenderloin, trying desperately to convince people that I was a normal person instead of a junkie who was starving and scared and just barely hanging on. Now that you've been in recovery like 13 years, right? Yeah. 13 years, congratulations. And yeah. you have the ability to look back. Do you think you could share just a little bit more about what led to that period in your life and where someone or some person might've been able to help you, Logan, at that point when they saw how desperate you were becoming? Yeah, I mean, people did try to help me. Lots and lots of people let me sleep in their basement, let me, bought me pizza on the street, gave me drugs, because that's what I needed at the time, right? Like, lots of people helped me or, or tried to help me, but I was unhelpable. I was inconsolable. Mm -hmm. And I was in cocaine psychosis for a vast majority of those 16 years, completely unattached to reality. And so people would help me and I would fuck them over. People yeah. would lean in and I would hurt them somehow. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it was like, I was a dangerous person to assist uh, back yeah. then. And so after I had gone through every human person I had ever met or known, slept on my last couch, you know, I, I did end up homeless. I, I had nowhere to go. And, and so um, those tenderloin hotels are there for people like me, if you can afford that, right? Like right. I look back on that as like, God, I'm so glad I was able to sell drugs enough to afford that hotel. You know, like it's, people have this thing around, well, you're selling drugs, you're committing crimes. It's like, yeah, I am. And, you, and the reason I am is because I am going to die right. if I don't eat. I'm going to die if I have yeah. to sleep in some dude's room tonight. Right. You know, like these are survival choices that people make. And so I was, again, was not super connected to my reality, thankfully. Yeah. 
I think a, a lot of what I experienced is luckily sort of in vignette, right? Oh, I don't have God. a real living, breathing experience of myself for those 16 years. Mm. Uh, and I'm really thankful for that. I yeah. think that, you know, the brain is magic. Uh, the brain does things to protect us. And we as human beings can pull ourselves out of anything. I guess like for me, in retrospect, like that's my big takeaway from, from my story and my journey is just like, I was end of the line. Like yeah. I, I was done. I wanted to die and was going to. And if you gave me an opportunity, I took it. For me to have found peace and to have built something out of nothing, you know, like I, that story that you're mentioning, I, I, scammed enough people to go and buy myself a Gucci hat and like two outfits that I wore to interviews pretending to be a person I was not not even the right the same age like it was all a ruse and one of those attempts worked I got a job managing a store on the hate street like as the general manager of something I had never done before just straight up because I decided to project that I'm this person. And that was not honest. That was an act of survival. And that was like, hell hath no fury, like a gay ginger scorned, <laughs> you know, like come at me world. Like at that point I needed to survive for different reasons, but I still needed to survive. I and just drawing this cool thread between the imagination that you had as a young gay child who, who saw yourself in this role. You weren't that either. You weren't a pop star, but you believed in some version of yourself. And I think it's a really like subtle mental health tip for people that even on those days where you can't believe yourself, you get up, you get dressed, you put on that Gucci hat or whatever the hat is that tells you that you can do this next thing, right? Yeah. And I love this, Logan, that during this whole time, you and I were both in the Get Dressed Once a Day Club, that you were like, yes, you can feel like crap. You can hate yourself. You can feel so anxiety ridden and be having the worst existential crisis. And you should get up and get dressed, yeah. put on some clothes and wash your hair, you know? Yes. It's, I really believe in it. I do. I think it's Damn, make super your bed. important. Yeah. Well, like if you don't make that bed, you're going to lay in it all day. Yeah. So you may as well get up and make it. I am. Um, I want to uh, ask any person who's just saying, I can relate to this guy so much. And I'm currently in my addiction. I'm currently in this place that Logan found himself. Do you have any suggestions for that person about a path forward for them? Find a doctor. Get a real actual doctor, not somebody who's in a room full of strangers with a bunch of coffee, find a real medical professional. And, you know, if you're homeless, there are services like that. There is yeah. always an emergency room. I know we're not supposed to suggest that, but that is actually how you find care yeah. when you're homeless often. So I think for, for drug addicts, like for someone who's just like, I've been addicted to cocaine for a long time. I didn't realize there was a drug called naltrexone that could yeah. take away my cravings instantly, right? right? Instantly, not yeah. in, in it, like in, you know, or not like in a week, like right then in the doctor's office. Like yeah. when I took that pill, I was like, oh my God, I can focus on therapy now. Wow. Okay, cool. 
cool. So, so you, you gotta be real about what you're going through. Like there's mental stuff, there's physiological stuff, and you often can't fix the mental stuff until you really take care of the physiological addiction. Yeah. That is, an, I think new recovery is pushing for this where Same. there's like medication assistance and you're in more than just your addiction, right? Yeah. Like you're not necessarily taking on, I am an addict. You're like a person in recovery or you're a person experiencing re- yeah. addiction. Like that's, that's been a really important distinction for me. Yeah. Same. I think, honestly, like not going too fast. I did harm reduction, right? Like I'm, I'm sorry. Like I was a crackhead for a long time. And so the deal that my doctor made with me was that I could stop smoking cocaine keep doing cocaine for a minute so I you know I quit smoking crack started doing lines again Mm -hmm. and I was able to do that for a little while that eventually turned into no lines and then no alcohol and that like it was like a process because some people with the trauma I had experienced particularly the the reenactment of the original trauma because I I basically spent 16 years doing hurting myself right and so you you have to kind of unwind that. It's like an onion. Um, but I would say harm reduction works. Yeah. Harm reduction worked for me. If you're at a place where you're at the end of the line, going from zero to 100 is probably not an option. Go right. from zero to five and go from five to 10, right? And, you know, I, th- I think it's really important too that people understand that some drugs are way more dangerous than other drugs. And, you know, that there, there is a way that you can, okay, maybe you're not doing lines, but m- maybe during that very brief window, you find a type of low THC with CBD that calms you down enough. Like I'm very much about these psychopharmacologists who can work with you for your body type to understand how do we get them to the point where they can step it all the way down. I, yeah. I totally agree. Totally yeah, I mean, agree. it's the same kind of idea of like why we're pushing for safe injection sites and things right. like that. Right? Like people are like, hear me say that. Like I always oh, recommending doing lines. That's actually not what I said, right? Like what I'm saying is if you're at the end of the line with your addiction, you're going to have to take steps to undo that addiction. And it takes time. And I I think there's a narrative out there of abstinence is the only thing that matters. You're only in recovery when you're at the end of this journey. And and the reality is that you're in recovery the moment you decide you're in recovery. And that looks like a lot of different things for a lot of different people. And for me, it looked like gradually stepping down from the very hardest core of drugs to less hardcore to no drugs. that, That was the deal for me. And it has really it's why I'm here. I was in yeah. rehab 16 times before, the, which actually evens out to once a year if you do it like that, even though that's not really how it happened. But like <laughs> that last hook, because someone was willing to let me be in the space in recovery that I was able to do. Yeah. And then they walked me through that journey. I, I've often thought when I'm walking downtown and I see a young person that I can tell is uh, hugely addicted and probably suffering with a lot of trauma and a lot of mental health, how, how, what's your perspective on these young people, especially with how explosive the problem has been in the last, you know, five years? Well, when I was a drug addict on the streets, we didn't have meth right. going on. So that was, that's a very different thing. Like I came up in heroin Portland, yeah. right? Where it was heroin and Coke, if you could afford it. But this is very different. This is, yeah. this is a new drug that has taken hold of our country 
in a way that just wasn't as pervasive before. It's actually not a new drug. It's just a new pervasive problem, but it wasn't, it's different. So I think that's a differing factor. Like the recovery that's available probably needs to catch up to the, the massive issue that has developed since these recovery sort of protocols were put in place way back when. Yeah. But I do think like the one thing that I remember from that time is people being kind to me, Mm -hmm. you know? So like, I remember vividly a woman named Janet Tandy, who's a friend of my mom would come and find me and buy me pizza. I remember vividly Courtney Taylor from the Dandy Warhols inviting me to the auditorium studio at one point, just because he was being nice. And like, they took me under their wing and let me record and did all this stuff because of that moment of connection. So I guess I would say to people like that are encountering folks that are on the streets or that are clearly experiencing something that there are still people that matter and that nobody chooses that, right? Like those, anybody you're experiencing on the street like that is experiencing something far worse than you experiencing them on the street. So I, I think staying compassionate, remembering that people first is actually how we should be sort of creating our cities and, and our policies. And we certainly haven't done that here. You know, this free for all of like, you can all suffer on your own as much as you want, go for it. That's not what I'm saying either. Like that's not a working model, but but really thinking through these are people. And if someone says they need help, they really probably do. No kidding. Um, Some of what I needed back then was money to just do whatever I needed to do to get through the day. And so I think giving freely is, is important and, and not assigning a moral bar to your gift where like, oh, you're a drug addict. I'm not giving you money. Oh, you're dirty. I'm not giving you money. Whatever that is, the dirtiest drug addict is who you should probably be kindest to. Mm, That's beautiful. I want to just talk now about, you know, the weight of trauma in your life and how you begin to focus less on the trauma and more on these incredible resilience skills and the bouncing forward part. How have you done that? Uh, Just give me a day-to-day experience of Logan in viewing the trauma in your life versus viewing your resilience and your health and your well-being. I don't identify with being anything but a pop star. Always, right? So I never identified as like a person who had been broken or, or anything like that. I always just was angry that this had happened to me and I was going to show you all. I, I think that's a big piece of it early on was just my, my own tenacity and my drive and my dreams. And I think a lot of the work that you and I have done together really helped, right? Like you can't mm-hmm. spend a few years talking about your story interviewing other people about their stories and creating something joyful and and celebratory around the fact that we all have brains and we've all been through stuff like all of that I think helped contextualize I had a moment a few years back or you know you mentioned that award I won yeah where I was celebrated for this stuff that had happened to me and and how I had reacted to it Mm -hmm. ultimately and what I had built from it. And so that obviously helped. I think there has been something so cool that's happened in the last five years in the culture where 
a lot of people have started talking about yeah. this stuff, started talking about trauma, started talking about resilience. Um, but, you know, a few years back, it really still, still hadn't yeah. happened. It almost and felt I, dangerous when we were talking about it, didn't it? It felt like this is so risky. Oh, yeah. yeah. I had a moment where, like, I got flown to speak at the CDC in D.C. about what we were doing and just it was new, right? Like the, the idea that you could stand up and, and speak freely and be yeah. happy and show people a pathway to also tell their stories. Um, it's been really cool to see that happen. I want to uh, shift gears to this very cool .gay project because it's a place where there's free advice and support to people who are gay and, and also young people considering coming out. So looking back at the past year, how much more difficult do you think it was for these young people who were trapped at home with their parents or do you believe eventually they probably all found their way anyway because it's what we have to do to survive yeah i mean i think it's really hard to be a queer or trans kid in a home that isn't a queer or trans friendly home right yeah. like that's terrible and so uh -huh. being away from your friends being away from your social supports i think has has been really tricky for for that community of youth those GSAs really, really matter in schools. The PFLAG meetings really matter. Pride really matters. Like all of these things where community finds each other and connects left this year. And so mm -hmm. .gay has been really cool. It's like .com or .edu, but it's yeah. fabulous. Because um, we were <laughs> like lean in to these like community centers that had closed and gay businesses that like had never been online before and like really built a digital pride over yeah. the last year. And it was the most successful internet domain launch in internet history. Unbelievable. I didn't see coming, but I'm so happy about. It's been really amazing to see how many people actually, like that we actually need each other. Oh yeah. You know? And it doesn't matter where you are in the globe, LGBTQ people need to find each other wherever you are. And I would say, if you haven't checked out the swag and all those, they're tender and they're poignant and yet they're so funny. I love the combination of levity and love, which is what we're attempting to do here as well with mental health. But I want to talk about, I love going to clubs, but it's really not my culture. I can kind of do without it. The tension that, that a the gay community must have felt to have all of those places where you can openly be gay and see your friends and party. What do you think is going to happen in this awkward transition as we're trying to get back to normal with members of the gay community? Yeah, that sucked. The canceling of Pride. Yes. It was bad. And, oh. and I think they're starting to open maybe a little bit this year safely. The reality is that the gay community has experienced really horrible pandemic loss before, yeah. you know? And so I grew up at the height of the AIDS crisis. I was obviously, as we talked about earlier, not living a safe life during that time. And so it was very pronounced, like this danger. I lost a lot of friends and an entire generation of my elders, like that, they're gone. And so I think all of us feel that, whether you're a young person or someone who was around for that, that is generational community trauma that we yeah. all have. And that this, I believe, really, for me at least, tapped into again, where it felt the same. It just felt the same to me, scary, that nobody knows any information. The information's changing constantly yeah. and we're not allowed to be around each other. We're suddenly afraid of each other's bodies. We're afraid of each other. It's, it's so similar. 
So I think there's yeah. a community trauma that we're going to have to work through that is long, long standing. And I think reconnecting is probably going to be the easiest part. Yeah. Gay people, LGBTQ people don't have a hard time finding each other and connecting. That's like the one thing we're able to do. Yeah. So I believe those sacred spaces will come back and thrive and we'll all have sex again. And But I think there is going to, at least for me, and I know for a generation of men slightly older than me, as well as maybe men my age, there is trauma that we're going to have to yeah. really work through. And I've already started that process. Uh, there's a really important thing that happens to me while I watch the news with freaking Dr. Fauci, who was the same dude that was yeah. telling us the news back then. It's like you have to contextualize. Yeah. Like this is, this is, you're not 14. Yeah. Right. You know, what was interesting, though, Logan, was one of the things that I thought was kind of a missed opportunity was we learned during the AIDS crisis that you couldn't tell gay men not to have sex. What right. happened and what was the turnaround for actually bringing down the numbers was saying, here's how you have safe sex. Like, why didn't we use that public health model and just saying, we know that mask and distancing really work and you can still go out. Can you mask and distance, please? You know, I was like very- no one listened to gay people I when the pandemic came about. I know it. it. That was so strange. They didn't care about us back then while it was happening either. So I, you know, I think there's probably an underlying systemic homophobia where we, you know, frankly, this HIV vaccine that just miraculously appeared only appeared after straight people started getting sick. I know. So, um, you know, I, I, really? I had a little bit of a thing where I'm like, oh my God, a COVID vaccine after six months when my entire community's been done since 1981? Like, yeah, I get it, man. I get it. Just, I, I feel like there's a thing there for sure. And yeah. as a community, we have to like stay aware that that exists and also like not re-traumatize ourselves constantly. Yeah, totally humble. So um, any regrets at all about this past year, oh, who you were? Oh, this you year. Yeah. <laughs> what you did, how you did quarantine. Do you have any kind of like, oh, I could have like maybe gone out to eat or maybe no. really? No, that's awesome. No, I feel like I did this exactly how I decided to do it and made a commitment that if other people are going to get sick and die from COVID is not going to be because of me. Oh. And if I get sick and die it is not going to be because of this. Mm. And so I just stayed in. I think there were a couple of internet posts early on. Like, I think I did an Easter post last year where I was like, if you went to church this Easter, I hope you go to prison for the rest of your life or something like that. <laughs> Potentially, like I could have toned my rhetoric down a little bit. But at the same time, I did feel like screaming because people were just not yeah. doing what I knew they needed to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, ultimately it was, it's so funny because I still feel as connected to you probably even more because um, we survived. It was so important that actually we survive, you know, I am a little worried about how all of us go back out in the world and just how awkward we're going to be. Are you at all concerned about this transition? Like I actually had friends over the other day and I was so tired after half an hour because right. we've been vaccinated <laughs> and I was just like, you all need to go home. <laughs> just go home. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's possible that people will be more awkward with each other. Yes. I, I, like I said, like I've been this way for a while where I think I'll probably bounce right back. Yeah. But 
but for sure being around other people is going to be weird. I noticed myself, I've been very anti-elevator during this time. I noticed myself still being like, get back when someone, yeah. tries, someone tries to get on the elevator with me. I think that will probably take some time for me to unwind and yeah. just, oh, right. It's, it's cool to give a person a hug or like all of that's going to feel new. I made out with a dude. I took a, um, a trip right before pandemic and made out with the dude in a bar, like right before the world. And yeah. which was the first time I had actually done that in like years. Mm. Um, and I liked it. And so I, I tend to think like the, we want to kiss each other. We want to connect. We want hugs. We love our families. Like those things are going to eventually sort of, um, level out the fear. Logan Lynn, thank you so much. And thank you for letting us hang with you for two weeks in a row. It's been completely amazing. Oh my God. I just love you so much, Logan. Love you too. This has been Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton. And thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please give us a thumbs up. And if you have any questions or topics you'd like us to cover, send us an email at Sheila at beyondwellsolutions.com. Ba, ba, ba.